Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome, everybody, to a new episode of Democracy-ish. I'm Wajahat Ali, and usually my co-host Danielle Moody is here, but she is sick, she is coughing, she is hacking, she tried her best to make it, but we said, Danielle, just chill. So rest, and we're going to talk to you next week, Danielle. But I am lucky to be joined by an esteemed guest. Look at that, Rabbi, I'm giving you esteemed uh, in front of uh, your name. Rabbi Sharon Browse is the founding and senior rabbi of ECAR. It's a trailblazing Jewish-American community based in Los Angeles. She has been named, folks, as the number one most influential rabbi in the U.S. by the Daily Beast. I have known her for years, and she has written a lovely book, a book that I think all of our communities need in the year 2024, called The Amen Effect, Ancient Wisdom to Mend Our Broken Hearts, and world. And it's not like we have anything to talk about. It's not like there's a war in Gaza. It's not like that war has polarized communities. It's not like there's a spike in anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. It's not like progressives are torn about this. So I have no idea how we're going to fill the next 30 minutes, but we shall try our best. Rabbi Sharon, welcome. Thank you so much, Waj. It's so good to be here with you. Thank you for having uh, me. I, I appreciate you joining us. And you know, I want to take a big picture approach. Uh, before we dive into these these conversations that everyone's talking about, everyone's WhatsApping about, uh, everyone's texting about, but people oftentimes don't say in the workplace or in public. Uh, oftentimes, then it comes out on Twitter and on Instagram, and friendships are being torn and communities are being torn. But you you have this book, and the the timing of this book is <laughs> you're like awesome, great timing. The, the uh, world loves the Jews right now. It's the yeah, perfect yeah, it's time like, to hear from a Jew. Yeah. Yeah. You, by the way, and today you're going to represent all Jews of all time, right. and I'll represent all Muslims. But, but <laughs> I, went, I once said, I don't even represent all the Jews in my own family. So <laughs> there's a, what's that saying? I was told that if there are uh, 10 Jews, there will be 11 opinions. Yes. Um, but, At least. you know, I, I want to take it from a different approach. I, I was in the, I was talking to a friend of mine uh, from college who is now a, very respected psychiatrist. He's in the Bay Area. And his clientele, as you can imagine, are people who are upper middle class, upper class, educated families, living the American dream. And I assumed, I said, listen, 
I think most people come to you, let me guess, it's anxiety, it's stress, it's depression. And you know what he said? He said, the overarching theme is a yearning for connection, a lack of connectedness. And why do I bring this up? I'm reading your book, and you say, literally, in the introduction, page 16, that very human longing for connection in our most intimate relationships, in community, with strangers, strangers, perhaps with God, is what I call the amen effect. And before we get into this, as a rabbi who has to be the repository of everyone's pain and outrage and, 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 and yearning and, and you know, uh, uh, and just distraught feelings. Why do you think in the year 2024, when we are so connected, Rabbi, that people feel an utter lack of connection? And, and why do you think this is so important for us as human beings at this moment to find connection? I know I ask you a simple question. Yeah, right. I mean, the first thing is that even before COVID, there was an epidemic of loneliness in this country, something that Dr. Vivek Murthy has written so powerfully about, something that many people in, in the field of psychology and neuroscience and, uh, and, and many clergy members have been deeply worried about now for over a decade. Um, and what we know is that loneliness not only hurts our hearts, but it literally hurts our bodies, that mm. we get sick when we're lonely. And it's it's really interesting because most, most times when we feel pain, the pain is sending a signal to our body that's actually going to help us. Like you put your hand on, your, on the stove, pull your hand away or you're going to get hurt. But when we feel the pain of loneliness, it actually pushes us into retreat which is the opposite of what we need. When we feel the sting of loneliness, we should be moving toward each other instead of away from each other. This was even before COVID, that we had this massive problem in our country in which 30% of Americans, 30% did not know the names of their neighbors who lived to the right or to the left of them, in which 20% of Americans said that they did not have a single confidant. And that is not only a problem for our, for our individual bodies and spirits, but that's a problem for our political systems. It's a problem for our democracy. Because as Hannah Arendt writes, in, and, I, and I quote her in chapter eight of my book, that, that ice, social isolation and loneliness are preconditions for tyranny. That, that these extreme views, conspiracy theories, um, extremist ideologies can only take hold in a society in which we don't know each other, we don't trust each other, we don't engage one another. And so the argument of the book is essentially a reclaiming of, of a very ancient, very powerful, um, psychological, psychologically attuned ritual um, that essentially invites us to show up for each other in celebration, in sorrow, and in solidarity. And that's a way not only to help heal our bodies and our spirits, but also a way to help begin to heal our democracy. And, you know, in the book, you have these chapters like show up, like you said, but the, the second one is please hold on. And I just want to focus on that for a second. The antidote to loneliness is sacred connection. And, and, and based on what you just said, I want to, I want to bring it to let's, let's employ it in action, right? With what's happening in, in Gaza, uh, you're seeing the fallout as we predicted in America, you're seeing fissures. You're seeing people retreat into their corners. You're seeing people batten down the hatches. You're seeing people see the worst of each other, right? You're seeing people essentialize each other. Uh, you're, you're seeing people, instead of listening or showing up for each other, 
bashing, isolating. And, and how do you create connection? And especially I'm talking about you because you have to hold many roles, right? <laughs> you're a rabbi of a Jewish American community and you're in this moment and people are asking you to talk about Israel and Palestine. And then you have your Jewish American communities and, and you have to somehow keep this thing tethered. How do you hold on to what seems like a fraying rope? where Israel and Palestine, what's happening there is actually destroying connections. And, and I'll, I'll lead off with destroying connections within, between those who perceive themselves as you know, pro-Israel Zionist Jews and the progressive community. Yeah, I mean, my, my North Star, for, really for the last 20 years of my rabbinate, but especially for the last three months, has been this ancient text that's really at the heart of the book, it's a really powerful paradigm. So I'm just going to share it with you quickly because it will answer your question. What this text says, and the text is 1800 years old. It's a really very old text. And what it says is that when the people used to go up to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem on pilgrimage, and so hundreds of thousands of Jews would come up from all across the land and the diaspora, ascend to Jerusalem, ascend the steps, they would enter into the temple courtyard and turn to the right. And they would circle counterclockwise around the perimeter of the courtyard and then exit essentially precisely where they had entered. And I always envision the Hajj when I'm when I'm thinking about this because it's the best way that I can understand what it must have felt like and looked like to have hundreds of thousands or in, in, in the case of the Hajj, millions of people moving in sync with each other. Except the text says, for somebody whose heart is broken, that person goes up to Jerusalem, goes up the steps, but turns to the left. And they are walking in every way against the current of humanity. And every person who's coming from the right has to stop when they see someone who's brokenhearted and say to them very simply, what happened to you? And then that person answers, I am heartbroken because this or this or this happened. And the person who's going in the other direction has to give them a blessing. And then they go on. That is the essence of the ritual. And it strikes me that at the very heart of that ritual are two things. Number one, compassion, actually seeing another human being who's in pain instead of retreating from, from each other in our times of greatest pain and sorrow. And so what I read at the heart of this ancient ritual is that we are called to engage each other first with compassion when we see each other in sorrow, not to look away not to retreat, but actually to see each other's pain and then to ask a question about it, to, to engage with curiosity and wonder and say, can you tell me about your hurt? Because I don't know your hurt. I only know my own pain and my own sorrow and my own family's pain, but can you tell me about yours? And so the book essentially is making this argument that the only way that we can heal some of what's breaking and what's already broken in our society is by turning to one another with compassion and with curiosity, by asking one another, there's something I don't understand about your experience or about your behavior or about the kind of language that you're choosing. There's something here that doesn't make sense to me. Can you help me understand? And that does not take the place of building a just society that's rooted in just laws and has just policies and where we have good governments that are ruling in fair and just ways and equitable ways. But it, I think very often we look at the crises and fissures in our society 
And we end up placing sort of these impossible standards for healing. Like we need to elect a government that's going to do this. And we do have to do that. But that also relieves us of the responsibility of actually engaging one another in a path toward healing. And that work also has to be done. So compassion and curiosity are really kind of the bywords of our time. I see these as the, the essential prescription for how we can begin to heal. So, you know, before you get to compassion, you did mention about seeing each other, right? Yeah. And, and talking to each other. In this particular situation, I mean, and I'm asking you to be the cultural ambassador of all Jews. Uh, if, you know, there are communities, as you know, uh, you've seen the polls, you've seen the data, especially with what's happening in Gaza. And, and many progressives uh, are like, I just don't understand. I just don't understand how my otherwise progressive Jewish friends could hold this X, Y, and Z position. At, you know, right now when it comes to, to Palestinians in Gaza. What would you want uh, those who are not Jewish, who, who don't have the insight to the community, to see and understand about Jews in this moment? Yeah, one of the most profound things I ever read about the Israel-Palestine um, conflict, battle, war, uh, endless war, hopefully not endless, um, but one of the most, let me start that again. One of the most profound insights that I ever read about the conflict uh, in Israel-Palestine was something that was written in a little footnote by Mark Gopin um, in a book called Between Eden and Armageddon. I read it years ago when I was in graduate school. And he said, you know, the way that people who, who live together know how to hurt each other the most, we know mm. exactly how to get under each other's skin. He said, that's what's at the heart of this debate. So for Jews, our core trauma is the trauma of genocide. It's the trauma of a history in which again and again and again throughout our history, wherever we have lived, no matter how much we have achieved a sense of privilege, of power, of you know, connection, we could be doctors, we could be professors, we could, you know, we could be conductors in the symphony. In an instant, everything shifts and our people are persecuted, exiled, and perhaps genocided. That's the core trauma that lives in, in, in the Jewish mindset, regardless of where you're from. And Jews are very diverse and come from all over the world. But that is, an, uh, that is a trajectory that has been repeated throughout history over the course of so many years that it really is built into the Jewish mindset. And he said, similarly for Palestinians, their, their identity is rooted in their connection to the land of Palestine. Their, their name is built on, on that um, principle. And so when houses are demolished and when olive uh, groves are uprooted, you're, literally the act of uprooting a people from the land when their self-definition is rooted in their connection to the land is cutting to their core trauma. The idea right now that's coming out from some of the most radical voices, these ultra-nationalists in Israel's government right now, when they talk about voluntary emigration, that's touching on, a, I think, a core trauma for the people who are, are you know, already see that they're in, in their living memory is the trauma of the Nakba. And so what we have right now is October 7th and the atrocities committed by Hamas on October 7th rape, abduction, and murder drove, uh, drove the Jewish people right back to, the, to 1941, to our you know, mo memories of our core trauma, and, you know, and Gazans being, uh, being 
forcibly moved or told to evacuate their homes and move to other parts and then needing to move from these parts to these parts and seeing massive destruction of their homes and then hearing extremist voices calling for you know, calling for them to leave altogether, I think is triggering their core trauma. So now we have two people, both of whom have been victims of history, both of whom have core multi-generational trauma. And, and how do we meet each other from that place of such rawness and such vulnerability? And so what I'm looking for is where do we overlap? Where can we see each other in sorrow? Where can we see each other as people who literally just want our children to survive? We just want our children to stay alive. We just want our kids to be able to go to school, to be able to fall in love and, and, and build, you know, plant a garden. And so can we find each other in that shared value? If so, what changes about our perspective here? So I think that one of the reasons that people are so confused by the Jewish response to this is because well, first, first of all, people have actively worked to not read the truth about what happened on October 7th, because somehow many people on the left took on the the kind of fake news um, mechanisms of the right from the previous administration, and now are actively saying things like, don't read the press, don't read what actually happened. So when you don't know what happened, then you encounter a community that's traumatized by what, by what happened, but it doesn't make any sense. So the first thing I think we have to do is be honest about what what happened on October 7th and what's happened since October 7th and how many lives have been destroyed in the last three plus months and how many people have been broken. And then can we find our way to each other compassionately? Can we recognize each other in the sorrow? And can we be curious about each other? Can we find a way to dream about a different kind of future, a shared future like the Israelis and Palestinians that I'm most inspired by are doing together. The people in Standing Together, for example, the, the Bereaved Families Forum, the Combatants for Peace, these are people who've actually found their way to one another in sorrow, but with a shared hope for a just future. From the New Yorker staff writer Vincent Cunningham, a keenly observed novel of a young Black man searching for his place in the world amidst a moment of historic change. Great Expectations is about David's 18 months working for the senator's presidential campaign. Along the way, David meets a myriad of people who raise a set of questions, questions of history, art, race, religion, and fatherhood that force David to look at his own life anew and come to terms with his identity as a young black man and father in America. Inspired by the author's experiences working on Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, Cunningham uses a political campaign as his narrative backbone. Great Expectations will be one of the talked about novels of the year, Colin McCann. Great Expectations is available wherever books are sold. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now, wherever you get your podcasts. 
You know, uh, as we uh, still endure this war and the, and the aftermaths of the war, unfortunately, there has been a spike in both anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. And what people haven't really talked about is how white nationalist groups have been feasting on this moment, the divide and conquer moment. And so you have these white nationalists online who are, if you don't know any better, very eloquent in their pro-Palestinian defense. And on the flip side, if you don't know any better and you don't know them and their history, very eloquent in their defense of Israel, but at the same time promoting the replacement theory, which is an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that has radicalized terrorists to commit violence against black people, against Jews, against Muslims, and against Latinos in the United States of America and abroad. And there's a situation here where I try to tell folks, hey, I can't solve Israel-Palestine. And, you know, I wish I could. And I, and I wish there's a path towards self-determination to, for Palestinians, and then Israel, Israeli Jews and Palestinians can live side by side or, you know, in the same one state, two state, whatever, with peace. But I live in the United States of America. And what I see as Thanos is white nationalism that is coming after our groups, and our groups don't see the big threat and are literally helping this group by divide and conquering against each other. So maybe, just maybe, yes, we have one of those shared spaces where maybe, okay, my kid can live in peace and your kid can live in peace. But in order for our kids to live in peace, we have to recognize the big threat coming down, literally attacking us. Do you see, uh, Rabbi Sharon, that you know, because people are so clouded with their trauma, their pain, their anger, as a result of, uh, of this latest war, how do we get folks within our communities? And I'm also talking about Black folks. I'm also talking about Latinos. I'm also talking about LGBTQ to say, hey, 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 wait a second. We have legitimate differences on this issue and other issues. But guess what? We got to band together like the Avengers. Yeah. I, I'm, I have to say, I see this just the same way that you do. And I remember one of the most powerful moments for me in the last decade was immediate, in the immediate aftermath of the 2016 election. We have built this really... Um, beautiful and and actually very thick set of relationships in Los Angeles, multi-faith, multiracial relationships. And after the election of 2016, we came together um, in the Islamic Center of Southern California, um, and we gathered together to talk about what was likely to be the threats that would come down to all impacted communities in the course of the um, now incoming administration. And actually, the room was mostly filled with Latino pastors, mm. interestingly. And someone got up, a representative from the Islamic Center, and said the following, said, I want to speak right now to my Latino brothers and sisters. When they come for you, they're coming for all of us. We reach out to you now with arms of loving embrace. And I remember bursting into tears because I thought, wow, it's true. Latinos are on the front lines in this new administration, or they, we think they will be. But Muslims aren't so far behind. I mean, he'd already made very clear how he felt about, you know, how he would feel about the, the, the folks that, that are in the Islamic Center every Friday. And so I was so stunned by it. And I thought that is what solidarity looks like. It's not that I'm totally safe and okay, so how can I, out of the generosity of my heart, be a good ally? It's that we are all in this together. And I believe that you are absolutely right. We have got to get this resolved and we have to get it resolved immediately. We have to find our way to one another because we have between our communities many shared interests. Mm. And we also have the people who have the most interest in us fighting with one another 
who you have already named, pose an incredible danger and threat to all of us and couldn't be happier to see the Jews and the issue of anti-Semitism being used as the wedge to break mm. apart the left, which is the way, frankly, Waj, that anti-Semitism has historically been used. Anti-Semitism right. is not part of the natural world. It is not a rising tide of anti-Semitism. It is a machinery that throughout history is used by people who want to drive wedges in movements for justice. We have, we've learned this throughout history. We saw it happen in the immediate aftermath of the Women's March. Who were the people who were driving that attempt to break the coalition that was responding to the 2016 elections? It's the same people now who are, you know, creating bots that are making people, you know, crazy on social media. I, I think you could see what, what happened with Claudine Gay, the fissure with black communities and Jewish communities. It worked like just gangbusters. It's very painful. And there are some real bad actors who are in this place who are not bots and who are, you know, and who also who are not white nationalists. But there are also people who are benefiting from this fissure. And it's extremely dangerous for all of us. And so this is why I think the most essential and important thing that we can be doing right now is actually if we if we can, because let me just take a moment. A lot of people are asking me these last few months, do you give up on your vision as a universalist now? And do you is it okay for us to just retreat to tribalism? And didn't October 7th prove that the world doesn't care if Jews live or die? And and my response is when we are grieving, when we are in the deepest grief. And here I can say to the Jewish community, because as we understand more about what actually happened on October 7th, we are in deep sorrow and grief. And I can say to the Palestinian community, witnessing day after day, the inc like incredible, devastating loss of human life, when we are in deep sorrow because our families are under attack, it's very hard to reach across the divide and find our way to each other. But we can't, and, and when we're grieving in the Jewish tradition, we go into Shiva in the yeah. aftermath of a, the death of a loved one. We go into the house of mourning and nobody goes into that house of mourning who's not a friend. We are surrounded by love. And that is exactly what our hearts need. We are fed by love. We, we are clothed, but everyone takes care of us. But you can't stay in Shiva forever. At some point, you have to get up and walk around the block. And when we walk around the block at the end of that most intense period, we realize, hey, I'm not the only one who's hurting here. And, and I'm not the only one who's also who also has love and who also has dreams here. And so the question is for you and for me and for all of our friends and all of our former allies, right? Can we step out of our shiva, out of our deepest mourning, and actually see that we're all hurting right now. And the only liberation will be a collective liberation. There is no other answer to this. The only way to build a future is going to be to build a future together. And Israelis and Palestinians, I think, and I hope, and I trust are going to be figuring that out themselves, led by some of the folks that I mentioned earlier. But can you and I figure that out here? Can we continue to find our way to one another with compassion and with curiosity? Because again, I hear Hannah Arendt's voice warning us, tyranny benefits when we are alienated from one another. That's the only way that they win is when we don't see each other as on the same side of history. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. 
Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities. Healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country. Immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun. And candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You know, looking on the outside, um, I was so disturbed by reading some posts, especially in the Jerusalem Post and essays, where the the Jewish writers looked at Jews who were asking for a ceasefire or quote-unquote pro-Palestinian as, quote, un-Jews, an excommunication of Jews, right? Takfiring, as we say in Arabic. And I, as a Muslim, I was like, Jews, don't do this. Don't do this, Jews. Learn from us. This is terrible. Uh, this is not going to help you. And, you know, with Muslims, there's, there's a joke. Uh, with the person that, that you also know, I won't mention him. Uh, he said, like, what do you admire about Jews? I'm like, oh, the fact that they're, they're this beleaguered, oppressed minority and they achieve so much success and influence in America. That's like a role model for the rest of us. I'm like, what do you admire about Muslims? He thought about it. He goes, your numbers. And so I was like, okay, I'll take it. The bar is low. But, but uh, we have 1.7 billion, all right? Not too many Jews. They're like 17, 18 million. And I'm looking at this, and I'm looking at the fissures. We've talked about Jews versus progressives, and you know, Jews and black people, and Jews and Palestinians, and Jews and the youth. Within Jewish communities, I look at these fissures, and I'm like, Jews, this ain't good for you, especially with the threat that I was talking about. So I'm going to ask you to put on your rabbi kippah, rabbi hat. How do you heal these fissures within Jewish American communities, especially with the youth, where it's a total game changer moment? Right. Right. You are so right. This is a huge issue right now. Um, and I, you know, I spoke to Ezra Klein a couple of months ago, um, shortly after October 7th, and he gave, it was an incredible conversation. He gave an introduction. I don't know if you heard the episode yet, but he gave an introduction that I thought was so wise and profound to help people understand what's going on intergenerationally right now in the Jewish community. Um, to paint a broad brush, because by the way, it, I mean, my kids aren't following this trend. So it's certainly not, it's not universal, but there right. is, there is a trend. We have to notice it that the, uh, that my, you know, essentially my parents and grandparents generation saw Israel as, you know, a place to take in refugees, a David to the Goliath of the Arab world, you know, desperate to fight for, you know, for our own existence and in the ever present hope of peace. My generation essentially got, got acculturated to an idea of Israel now of strength in the Israel of the 90s, of the Oslo Accords, which is when I started spending time in Israel, an Israel that had power and had strength and was engaged in an occupation and desperate to end it. 
desperate to make peace, desperate to figure out how we could help strengthen the, the, the Palestinian leadership so there could be a possibility of a two-state solution so both people could live in peace side by side with safety, security, and self-determination. Our children's generation grew up in a world in which Israel was strong and powerful, and there was an occupation now significantly more entrenched than when I was there in the 90s and not striving for peace. That's the major narrative of the last 20 years under this increasingly hardline and rightward turning government. And so that's why so many young Jews today look at Israel and say, you're not, you're not even trying what's going on. Now, the fact is that over the last year, since Israel's most hardline, ultra-nationalist messianic government came into power, the people of Israel woke up and took to the streets, hundreds of thousands of them, day, week after week, day after day, saying, this isn't who we are. This isn't our grandparents' dream. It was an awakening similar to the awakening under the Trump administration of many Americans who said, I've always been upset about this, but I've never taken to the streets before. Now I have to fight for it. And so many people were starting to make have real movement on this. Then October 7th happened. And that Shabbat, that Saturday night was the first Saturday night in 10 months when there were massive protests against the government yeah. because people were reeling from the atrocities that happened that morning. They're coming back to the streets now, Waj. Like people are back on the streets calling for this government to be dismantled, calling for a new election, you know, declaring that we must have a just peace, we must have a democracy. But there, I mean, those are our allies in this struggle. Those are the people whose voices I, you know, need to amplify. But I understand why generationally young people are, young Jews are experiencing this very differently than the way that I experienced it and the way that my, my parents experienced it. The answer to this dilemma is that we actually have to meet each other on the core values. I think when young Jews are crying out about how upset they are about what's happening in Israel, I think that we have to honor that they're seeing their incredibly tragic loss of human life and they're expressing a yearning for a different kind of future. And I share both that sorrow over the loss of Palestinian lives, and I share a dream that we have to begin to envision a different kind of future, and then we have to do everything we can to support it. So I would use different language, I would use different strategy, but I definitely understand where these young Jews are coming from. At the same time, I also understand where the older Jews are coming from when they say, do you understand anything about history? And here I'm going to say something a little controversial, which is whenever I speak with Palestinian friends and they talk to me about their yearning for home, about their sense of abandonment by the world, about their desperation for self-determination, I always think there is a people in the world who are very well suited to understand those things because we share those human experiences, a yearning for home a sense that we've been abandoned by the world, a, a fierce hunger for self-determination, which is why the state of Israel was born in the first place. Can we meet there? Can we start the conversation there? When one side delegitimizes the other from the outset, there's not much room for conversation, but can we not find our way to one another as human beings who share a yearning for a life that is safe and dignified and peaceful where we and our children can have a future? And that's why you were called the number one most influential rabbi 
in America by the Daily Beast. Uh, I appreciate it. Rabbi Sharon, I wish I had more time with you. Thank you uh, for joining us. Uh, I know you have a lot of work to do, and it's going to be a stressful few months, but uh, your shoulders are strong enough to bear it. Uh, your book, The Amen Effect, I hope people pick it up. It is the ancient wisdom to mend our broken hearts and world. And it's a book about healing. It's a book about connectedness. It's a book uh, that hopefully cures what I would call as the disease of loneliness that is affecting so many folks around the world. And maybe, just maybe, uh, we can show up for each other, we can see each other, and we can at the very least build uh, some compassion and empathy while others are trying to do the opposite. Thank you so much. Rabbi Sharon Browse, I hope you can join us again. And next time there will be Danielle. And I, <laughs> I guarantee you uh, she will ask probably better questions. And she might even drop an F-bomb, but it will be an exquisite F-bomb. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, I bring the you. faith. She'll bring the F-bomb. Thank you for much, so much for joining us. And thank you all for listening to Democracy-ish. We will be back next week with my co-host Danielle. Inshallah, of course, if we still have a country and democracy left.